Hello, I'm Rena Grobe. And I'm Madvi Romani. And this is Misinformed, a show where we'll be talking about our latest internet obsessions. So Rena, what did you get obsessed with this week? On December 25th, 2020, Wonder Woman 1984 came out. Now, I should probably preface this by saying I am not a fan of the Wonder Woman movies. I can't speak for the comics because I haven't read them, but when I watched the first movie, something about it didn't really sit right with me, and the second Wonder Woman film raised some even more problematic questions. The most notable issue with the second Wonder Woman film is the lack of consent in the movie. If you haven't seen the movie, now is probably a good time to stop listening and or just accept that you're going to hear a bunch of spoilers about the movie. In the second Wonder Woman film, 1984, as the title suggests, Diana is now in the year 1984. She's working at the Smithsonian. Her mediocre white boy love from the first movie is dead. She basically has become a loner, has no friends, and is super sad and has like adjusted to life in the human world. And she uses a stone to make a wish, and she brings him back. And this is where it gets super problematic, because instead of, I don't know, I mean, we're already in a fantastical world, so basically anything could happen, right? Instead of coming up with some silly way of bringing him back, they decide that Steve is going to just occupy some other man's body. And the reason this is incredibly problematic is... It is implied that Diana kisses him and sleeps with him all the while. Essentially, she high-key is doing all of these things to him without his consent, and that is incredibly problematic. So when you first brought this up as a topic to talk about, I wasn't quite sure about it, I have to admit. I was like, oh, okay, it's like this fantastical film. And I grew up in the 80s where we had a lot of these body swap movies. Big, for example. So I was just like, oh, he just swaps into a body and there's a distinction between mind and body and all this. And then to wrap my mind around it, I was thinking about like, okay, what if the genders were swapped? So what if it was a superhero who was a male and he wanted to bring back a woman who he was in love with and he used another woman's body to do this? And then other woman had no recollection, no memory of the fact that she had had sex with him, kissed him. She just woke up way later and superhero was like, hey, how are you doing in a market somewhere at the end of the film? And it was just dealt with with a very tongue in cheek manner. And in the credits, this man whose body is occupied is referred to as just handsome man. And so if we swap the genders, if this woman whose body was occupied just to be used to fulfill basically the superhero's sexual desires was referred to in the credits as hot chick, I would have a massive problem with it. So I was like, oh yeah, that's interesting. But what's also really interesting is when I grew up in the 80s and we had all these body swap movies, when I think back on them now, they are massively problematic. So it's really indicative of the time now which I think is good that people are like, hey, what about consent? And also, it's not just limited to women, it's also male consent. Because like I say, one of the biggest films of the 80s was Big, which stars Tom Hanks. And it's about a little boy who wants to go big. So he becomes an adult. And there is a scene there where a woman who is 30 kisses basically a child. And I mean, he's in a different body. He's in the grown-up's body. But it's weird when you think about it. And I think part of that is... 
also at that time, you know, if it was a 13-year-old girl and a grown man who kissed her, even though her mind was occupying a grown-up woman's body, it would be massively problematic at that time. But I think it's this male-female thing or man-woman thing that, I guess, lets people get away with it more. And which is why I had that little bit of a glitch, just trying to like wrap my mind around it. And then also, yeah, like you were saying, part of me is like, oh, this is a storytelling device because also I write stories and stuff. And for me, it's not even the 80s. It's the bed trick. It goes back to Shakespeare, much ado about nothing, Boccaccio's Decameron. It's a massive plot device in traditional literature, which has been being used for thousands of years. So I studied literature. So I was like, oh, that's just measure to measure and all of that stuff. The first instance of a bed trick is actually found in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in Genesis, apparently, when Laban substitutes Leah for Rachel on Jacob's wedding night. And then Jacob discovers it the following morning. So the idea that bodies can be swapped and people can have sex thinking that they're having sex with somebody else and all this kind of stuff has been used in tropes in storytelling for a long time. And yeah, it's massively problematic when you think about it. Yeah, I think it just reveals something kind of ugly about white feminism in particular here, because consent is the cornerstone of modern day feminist principles. So really what it just reveals is that white feminists aren't really so much interested in equality as they are as advancing women to the same position as white men. And I think that in the movie, the scene where she is in the market at the end and she smiles at him, that is so creepy because here is a man who she has essentially sexually assaulted, who has no memory of anything that has happened, and she's smiling at him like everything is okay. For how many people is that a reality, waking up and not knowing what has happened to them, having blacked out, having been violated like that? And this movie sort of tries to make a nod to, you know, because the actor who plays the body swap guy, he's in a lot of Hallmark sort of like rom-com romance films. So it's supposed to be like a nod to the meat cute, when in reality it's like she's violated this man and now she's creepily smiling at him at a market. And there's also something about like the other character in the movie, the cheetah, where she, because she's supposed to be assaulted or an attempted assault is supposed to happen in the movie. And her flip to the dark side is supposed to be her getting revenge and her sort of enacting her revenge and then sort of like not knowing when to stop progressing beyond it. And that like causes the flip, which like that's also really disrespectful, I think, to victims. Also just bad storytelling because you can give a female character nuance and she can have you know character growth without having the reason behind it be sexual assault yeah i think with that that's the thematics of the movie so it doesn't make sense that your villain her big problems comes from a sexual assault while the protagonist can sexually assault basically somebody and get away with it. And just to put it in context, they go to this man's house, her and her love who is occupying this man's body, they try on all his clothes. So he obviously has a life. It's not like, you know, he just came out of nowhere. Also, when it's when we're talking about the film's internal logic, there were a few things that are off. So like you said, the body swap thing didn't actually have to happen because this stone, which is magical, it can conjure missiles out of thin air. It can make a divine wall around Egypt. 
it can do all this stuff, but yet it can't just bring someone back, you know, in their own body without messing. And I think part of that is the film is called Wonder Woman 84, and it's an homage to the 80s. And body swaps, like I said, was massive in the 80s. But there were also a lot of other things in the 80s, like racial stereotypes. When you think about Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, that was released in May 1984. The National Asian American Telecommunications Association for the Advocacy Group Chinese for Affirmative Action issued a joint statement calling the film, and in particular the characters of the Shanghai crime boss, Lao Che, and the Chinese sidekick, Short Round, and the English thuggy cult priest, Mola Ram, racist in its portrayal of Asian people. And this film also, in its callback to the 80s, also brings back the racism of the 80s. There is a really, really great article in Slate about this, which points out some of the issues. For example, that in his quest for world domination, this guy, Lord, visits an emir, who is an Egyptian oil magnate. And the movie presents him as a monarch, and he's referred to as your royal highness. But at that time, Egypt was a democracy in the 1980s. And the word emir is a Muslim term that hasn't been used to describe Egyptian leadership for thousands of years. Emir is nearly exclusively a descriptor used in countries like Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates. And also his character's costume is really confused. He's got a headscarf and a three-piece grey pinstripe suit underneath an open robe and a gold trim. And so Egyptian male dress includes garments like this long dark overcoat, but his look is more in line with the styles of Saudi Arabia or UAE, where it's customary to pair a head wrap with long robes. And also the women of that time in Wonder Woman 84's Cairo, Diana saves them and they're all wearing hijabs or niqabs. But during that period in Egyptian history, wearing those items was a topic of widespread debate because the country was struggled to determine how much of a role the Islamic faith was taking into public life. So basically the movie, in short, is really rife with stereotypes and it confuses a lot of things like the Iraq-Iran war. The emir makes a wish on this stone as well to make this divine wall around Egypt to keep out the heathens, which is a direct link to Islamic zealots. Yeah, I mean, if we've learned one thing so far, it's that Hollywood or white people in the West don't really care to distinguish between Middle Eastern countries. They're all the same to them and just an exotic setting for them to play out their white savior narrative. I think in particular with Wonder Woman 1984, one of my friends pointed out to me, he said that the fact that Steve wakes up in the 1980s, a man from the 1940s, and the fact that he does not comment on integration was like a slap in the face, as he called it, because it implies that you know, a white man from the 40s would not have been raised racist and it kind of implies oh yeah racial harmony has always existed and this thing that was a struggle and a fight and still is it's not a big deal on top of that they take this man's body into a dangerous situation where he's being shot out with absolutely no acknowledgement that he is he's a mortal being like what if he dies in this situation it's not actually going to impact steve that much because he's just occupying someone's body but they've massively violated this man and put him in such a dangerous situation in particular the scene where they fire the rock and then Diana uses her lasso to latch onto it and then save these children while they're in Egypt sort of reveals a bit of a problematic aspect. See, 
I find Gal Gadot to be an incredibly problematic individual. In particular, revealing to that scene, there's sort of a grossness to it when you consider the fact that she served in the IDF, and within recent times, the IDF, in fact, in a situation that almost completely mirrors that scene, killed four Palestinian kids playing soccer outside. So the grossness of having that scene mirrored, but this time the former soldier is saving for Arab children who are playing soccer is kind of disgusting. Also, what was up with that silly imagine thing she did at the beginning of coronavirus lockdown? She got a bunch of other multi-million dollar celebrities to sing imagine to us, and it was supposed to inspire unity and like, oh, we're all in this together. And there was kind of this thing of like, well, we're not all in this together, gal. Some of us are sitting in tiny apartments while you are sitting in your $20 million mansion with your pool and your extensive grounds. I don't really feel comforted by you singing this song poorly at me. It wasn't even sung well. It's like, it kind of feels like you're mocking me. Not only did Gal Gadot, obviously she was part of the Israeli Defense Forces, but... In 2014, just a week after the Israeli strike on Gaza that killed four Palestinian boys, she had a Facebook post which was in support of the IDF. So it's really strongly mirrored and linked. And also, just to go back to, yeah, the internal logic of the film just bothers the hell out of me. This lasso that is supposed to be a truth-telling lasso, but there's so many inaccuracies in the film, like I said, about the... Iraq, Iran, war, about Egypt being democracy, all of that. So it's also off in that sense too. I think this is the basic problem of Hollywood just being like, oh, we have to be feminist. How do we do this? Let's just gender swap all of our franchises. Let's take something that is works really well, like superhero movies, and then we just make a woman the protagonist or let's take you know oceans eight make it all women ghostbusters make it all women but first of all it's kind of insulting because women are kind of piggybacking on the back of massive franchises that were made by men male stories men making money out of it men being most of the makers of this stuff and then oh just create a female version which isn't really feminist it's just so shallow and this is typical of that because structurally nothing's changed. You've just put a really good looking, thin, able-bodied woman into the position where a man would be, basically. It's really not effective. It's also just incredibly lazy storytelling because instead of in any way addressing issues that affect women in real life, there's something super condescending about it. Be like, oh, you want a superhero movie? Okay, here you can have it. Oh, you want a version of Ocean's Eleven? Okay, here you can have it. Ocean's Eight, I don't know if you've seen it, but that movie has a huge problem with tokenism. We're going to have an Indian character, we're going to have a, a Chinese character, and we're going to have a black character. Then the rest are going to be white women. And done. Again, this goes to the problem that most of these female movies are still just being spearheaded by white women. Patty Jenkins, who's the director of both Wonder Woman films, she wrote the second one. But if you look at the creative writing team, it's almost First of all, the first one was written exclusively by white men. The second one was written with Patty Jenkins, like she wrote part of it, four people wrote it, 
And with the exception of one who is Asian American, it's almost completely white people writing this movie. You can also tell that this character was most definitely created by a man because no woman would dress like that, or at least not for this purpose, because her armor is completely inefficient when it comes to fighting. You would not wear a skimpy, tight-fitting outfit like that, or at least I wouldn't. Maybe I shouldn't speak for all women. But there's a very male fantasy sort of thing to the clothes that Wonder Woman is wearing. But yeah, it's so condescending to just give women female versions of male things. It's like, you don't deserve your own stories. Here, have this, and shut up. Yeah, the fact that it's produced and written in white Hollywood goes a long way to explain a lot of the way that they portray the Middle East. In his 1988 book, Cruel and Unusual, Negative Images of Arabs in American Popular Culture, Michelac wrote, One major reason why the Arab has come to represent otherness is probably that Arabs are major world people that the Americans know least about. And his observations can be expanded to include not only Arabs, but all of the ethnicities that make up the Mena region and who are constantly pigeonholed by movies like this. But actually, I was thinking about how Hollywood just pigeonholes every culture. There was this great article in Refinery29 ages ago about, you know, the American's version of the French woman, the sophisticated French woman, you know, how French women do everything. And it's a massive industry. They've just taken all French women, they've packaged it, commodified it, And then there are loads of articles in Cosmo and all of that. How to flirt like a French woman, how to be sophisticated, how to do your makeup like a French woman, how to wear clothes like a French woman, blah, blah, blah. And also I was reading this article about the portrayal of Russian women. So there's this idea that we have in the West that all Russian women are tall, leggy, beautiful creatures who can walk in high heels on ice. But this stereotype was created by Hollywood and by America's relationship to Russia. And the stories they told were all about these honey traps and these KGB women, and they made them into femme fatale. And a German-American film director, Ernst Lubitsch, he had a really interesting quote. After releasing his 1928 film, The Patriot, he said, We can only show Russia in a style russe, because otherwise it would appear unconvincing and atypical. If we show Petersburg as it is, the non-Russian public would not believe us and say, that is not Russia, but France. We are not historians or biographers. We are dealing with the imagination and feelings of the audience. I find this super fascinating because, yes, they're dealing with the imagination and feelings of the audience, but in doing that, they're creating whole imaginary spaces and they are affecting all of our culture and everything they do. They are stereotyping and pigeonholing everything. And you can see this in books as well, bringing up Bebe, this book that was a bestseller about how the French bring up their children because they're supposed to be the best behaved children in the world. Or you can see it in like, oh, how the Danish do everything great and all of those books about the Danes and this fetishization and the commodification of cultures, which just leads to stereotyping an erasure of really the complexities and nuances and everything of the cultures and it's all coming most of it from the west and from that anglo-american entertainment complex that dominates there's also something there about oh they're concerned with people wouldn't believe us or we can't play with people's feelings completely ignoring the feelings or the livelihood of the people they're portraying in their films hollywood does really really feel like they have the right to 
portray everyone's stories. I remember when The Reader came out. I don't know if you've seen this movie. The book is an extended metaphor with the German youth dealing with what their parents did, or rather what their parents did not do during the Holocaust. And then it was made into a movie starring Kate Winslet and Ralph Fiennes as the two lead characters. And I remember watching it. I mean, granted, the younger version of the male character was played by a German actor. In the scenes where he's an adult, they're played by two British actors. And I remember thinking, it's really odd to have a movie about a uniquely German experience about grappling with guilt being portrayed by the English. Like, why, why, why did you do that? Hollywood, what are you doing? Stop. Other people's stories are not for you to just take and use. Hollywood is about making money. It is the cogs of capitalism. And capitalism is inherently sexist and anti-feminist because it exploits the weakest people and the most marginalized people in our community, which is often women of color. And all of these films are so shitty to those people and exploits their image. Yeah, I mean, Ben Kingsley playing Gandhi. Why? Couldn't they find an Indian actor to do that? Or, like, this is the biggest population in the world, dudes. Yeah, I mean, the same can be said for Gal Gadot, right? She's now slated to play Cleopatra in an upcoming movie. Also, I might add, written and directed by Patty Jenkins. So it's really, really nice that these two white women feel like they have the right to tell absolutely everyone else's stories. Gal Gadot's casting as Cleopatra has, I think, rightfully caused some anger because Gal made the argument that Cleopatra was actually Greek. And it has been pointed out that at the time of her birth, Cleopatra's family had been in Egypt for over 270 years, and that Gal herself considers herself Israeli, which is a country that has only existed for 75 years. So Cleopatra is not Egyptian, but Gal is Israeli. There's also kind of, I think that she's producing the movie Gal herself. So this whole lie of like, oh, we, we couldn't find a suitable actress. There's kind of a thing of like, but were you looking? Were you really looking? Like, it kind of feels like you just want to play this character. And this is just a good way to do it. Just to continue with Gal Gadot being a terrible person, I remember the Medium article was published in 2017 that caused quite a stir. It was written by a model, I think she was anonymous, but it was during Me Too, you know, she came out with her story. She said she was sharing an apartment with Gal Gadot and she was actually raped by a common friend and she turned to Gal because she felt safe with her and that she was her friend. And she said that Gal took her down to the basement and they were alone and her anger exploded and she blamed her completely for what happened and she shamed her and said that it was her fault and her mistake for you know going to the wrong club and hanging out with these guys and in this article I remember her quote was gal had succeeded in a predatory industry because she is a predator all of that is from the medium article it is she said she said just to be clear But yeah, that's what I think of when I think of Gal as well. Yeah, I mean, that feels on brand for white women, right? We've seen so many examples of that in Hollywood. Lena Dunham, Amy Schumer, all of these women have a habit of protecting whiteness before they protect their fellow women. But just to like sort of loop it back to Wonder Woman, what's actually super interesting about the Wonder Woman comics is that they were created by a man called William Moulton Martson. He wrote them under the pen name Charles Moulton. He ran the idea by his wife, Elizabeth Holloway Martson. So according to a 2001 fall issue of Boston University's alumni magazine, he went to 
Boston University, it was the idea of Martin's wife to create a female superhero. Martin recommended an idea for a new kind of hero who would conquer not with fists or firepower, but with love. Fine, said Elizabeth, but make her a woman. So also, it's interesting to note that Martin invented the first version of the lie detector test, which I guess was sort of the inspiration then for the lasso, which makes men tell the truth. And I don't know, there's just something doesn't sit right with me with being like, oh, this is a female superhero, but actually it was created by a man. And not only that, it was sort of an idea stolen from a woman and then credited to a man and then created the way men idealize women. There's also something about the history of comic books in and itself. So I was talking to my friend who loves comic books and he was saying about how, for example, Captain America was created to send to the troops during the war because it motivated them and installed in them a sense of patriotism and specifically comic books because they're easy to fold and put into your military uniform. So the whole basis of all these comics kind of already comes from kind of a gross place. It comes from a place of war, of capitalism, of white supremacy and sexism. In these superhero stories, in these hero stories, there's the idea of the hero's journey, which is a very famous tracking of what the hero's journey is through an analysis of many myths and stuff written by Joseph Campbell. But Victoria Lynn Schmidt, she distinguished the heroine's journey from the hero's journey. And it's different how women go through their journey of their stories. It revolves around the fact that a woman's journey starts with they think that the world that they're living in is perfect, but then they start to realize that actually it's an illusion and they have to awaken from their real world and go through the gates of judgment and metamorphosize by facing all of their experiences of fear and abandonment and guilt or shame, giving up their old way of being and forming a kind of new identity in their own power. And in the end, the heroine's journey or her reward is kind of spiritual and internal. And they're committed to mutual interactions with the world and new strategies for living. And it's not about this hero's egotism that is a trademark of male stories a bit more. So it's quite interesting that it was created by a man because for most women in the world, I can say that actually for myself, like, you know, you grow up in a certain world and you're like, oh, this is the world, everything's great. And then you're like, hey, uh, I'm being tricked here because I'm a woman. <laughs> I'm being treated differently or like kind of break away a little bit or you see things. You have this period of disillusionment always, I think, as a woman, which men don't necessarily have. They go outwards into their journey. And also maybe it's just how we're socialized and all of that kind of stuff. And on that note, here is Ramon with Three things that the comic book industry can do to be better. Hi, my name's Ramon. I'm a lifetime comic book fan and all-around pop culture nerd. Here are three things comic book movies and comics in general can do to improve. Number one would be to get more people of color and women in the writer's rooms. I feel like a diversity of voices can do a lot to improve a lot of the current pitfalls of the genre in general. Number two would be not making a character sexuality, race, or gender their defining character trait or, you know, the thing that their plots revolve around predominantly. And number three would be not being afraid to make mistakes, essentially. Anything new is going to come with its, like, fair share of, you know, mistakes and blunders. But when it comes to, like, representation, 
I'd rather they make a mistake trying to, you know, shine a light on a new voice than not try at all and just rehash the same stories. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you like, you can share your internet obsession with us. Tweet us and follow us on Instagram at the underscore misinformed or email us at misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to our newsletter. Find the link via our Instagram or our show notes. We are an independent, non-profit podcast. If you would like to show us some love, you can give a one-off donation via SoundCloud or become a patron on patreon.com slash misinformed. Thanks for listening and until next week.